Welcome to episode 56 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Rob Walling, who amongst a long list of entrepreneurial endeavors, is founder of the Micropreneur Academy, and also is co-host of the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, what's the backstory on how we met Rob? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, for all our listeners, this is the second time we've had to do this <laughs> because of audio problems, but uh, hopefully this will be a little better. So, Rob, yeah, the, the way I, uh, you were brought to my attention or the way you came on my radar was because of Hacker News, which I've just realized is how everything comes to my attention these days. And I think you, it was probably a couple months ago you wrote some interesting posts about entrepreneurship and bootstrapping startups. <laughs> And uh, ever since then, I, I kept in my mind that you know it would be great to have you on the show. And so to get started, uh, I thought it'd be great if you could just give us a little background on how you got into technology and how you got in, how you became an entrepreneur. Sure. Well, I uh, as I've told you guys before, I um, started writing. Well, no, no, code. this is news to me. This is all yeah. fresh. You've only this heard this two, or, two or three times before. I. Um, it's when a glitch I, in the matrix. When I was uh, when I was about eight years old, my parents bought me an Apple IIe, oh. and I um, I just took to writing code right away. I mean, there's there's a lot of developers who follow this story, you know, have the same experience. But it was kind of like writing code and being able to create something alone on my own and just create something cool like a like a text-based game or something was so invigorating and so amazing to me uh, at the time and um i loved creating games for you know for our friends and they were i loved it when people said oh this is such a neat dungeons and dragons game you know and they would they would play it and it was exciting to be able to do that and well, why, uh, why is that so awesome because i feel the same way and it's hard to describe to people sometimes it's <laughs> It's just yeah. that ability to create something out of nothing. That for, to me, it's even more fun to create something, can create a game, say, than it is even to play a game, which, you know. Indeed. I, there are people that, uh, you know, Paul Graham calls them makers, people who make things. And he kind of generalizes it across art, like painting. And I'm a musician as well. And so I generalize it across like guitar playing. And there are a lot of parallels for me personally between playing the guitar, writing a song or learning a song and writing code. And there, there's some fundamental things like the math, you know, every, both of them are fairly mathematical. But beyond that, there, there really is this this maker in people who love, uh, who love, you know, writing code. And, um, I think there's, there's ongoing debates. I mean, I had a blog post a couple of years ago and it was like comparing art, you know, is programming art. Right. And I, it's kind of fun to talk about. It's really academic. It doesn't really matter, but I genuinely think that people who love to write code have the potential and the desire to, to do a lot of other things. You see a lot of overlap with musicianship as an example. Right. Well, of course, there's the classic book, Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham, which is all about that. That's right. Yep. That's, that's his essay, a taste for, or I think it's called A Taste for Makers or Something for Makers. That's where he talks about that. Right. I, when, I have to, when I explain it to friends of mine, I, I'm always, I always use the analogy. I'm, saying I'm, I'm closer to an artist or a writer or maybe a mathematician, at least psychologically, than I am to, say, an engineer. I think. I mean, uh, I, I just in the sense that I'm trying to create something and nothing, and I don't mean to, to be sort of pretentious about it, you know, that, oh, you know, what I do is so important. It's just that, that feeling of just that sense that I can create something out of nothing, that there's this universe that I can make all my own, and I, and I can make all the decisions, and then, and then show it to the world, and, and hopefully create something that actually is important in some way or another. 
Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that there are different groups of developers. I think we, the three of us on this podcast are similar in that, like that we write code because it's the creation. I also think there's another group of developers who they kind of don't care about the creation part of it. And maybe they do care more about just the fundamental building blocks of writing code. And uh, I think those people tend to be less passionate about it. I, I don't think it hits them at, at an emotional level. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but like I've written code like where I get emotional. I don't sit there and cry, but I like get I'm like right. riled up or something, you know, if it's not working or I get like really proud of myself if it works way beyond I've ever been, how I've ever been with a math problem, you know, or something that's very right. engineering wise, like you said. Perhaps it's like, a, Jason, perhaps it's like a, you could use a soccer team analogy where you have defenders and strikers and goalkeepers, different types of coders. Yeah, you, yeah. Well, in sports, you clearly have like you know, to use the soccer analogy. I mean, you know, whether you're an offensive player or defensive player, I mean, you you always have different personality types, different reasons why they play that way or why they like to play that position, and and which is good because if everybody wanted to play forward, you'd be in trouble. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think the same with same as with coding. You need some people who are out in the edge trying new stuff. You have some people who like to build big systems. You like some people who like to just uh, who refactor and 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 make code clean and workable. That was otherwise troublesome or buggy. You have all kinds of different um, types of developers. I think he's right about that. And, and people do things for all kinds of different reasons, which is another truth, I think, that we've, we've discussed many times, Justin. But so, yeah, I, yeah, I love to code. Justin loves to code. It's fun to talk about. It's like I almost can't get enough of it. I, I, I tell people, too, there's of all the things that I love, and I love a lot of things um, to do. I like to read. I like to play sports. I like to, uh, you know, I could just go on a whole list. But there's few things that I could do for eight or ten hours a day every day, like I do with coding. And I'm yep. not sure exactly why that is, but it has something to do with that that so, need to create. So where do we get to with Rob's story? So Rob <laughs> was programming as Apple IIe and then I interrupted. So yep, I was, I was. <laughs> that was the first sentence, I think. <laughs> the year was 1982. Yeah, so I was... Uh, this is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> indeed. So yeah, so I was eight years old. I was writing code. And then around that time, probably around the age of 10 or 12 is where the entrepreneurial side started kicking in. And I realized that I could buy comic books and candy for a lot less than I could sell them. You know, it was a little bit of arbitrage. And so I started... Um, I just became kind of a reseller at school. So I would buy stuff. My parents would take me to, to pack and save, which was at, you know, before this pre Costco, this is early eighties. And, uh, I made, I started making a lot of money for, you know, a 10 or 12 year old at the time. Um, I remember pretty quickly bringing in about $60 a month. And then there were months that I would hit 150 or 200 bucks in a month. And again, this is the early eighties and I was 12 or 13 years old. So it was really exciting to me. And it, what the funny thing is it wasn't just the money, but it was the, it, it was it was like that emotional thing of like wow I'm doing something that's that's other people can't do. It was like this create I was creating wealth or creating something out of nothing, and it was really exciting to me. And if we, we should have it, invested in Apple at that stage. I know, I know, and I owned you know I owned a couple of uh, of apples early on. How how did I not think about this? <laughs> yeah, you should have rolled all your profits right into Apple stock. That's right. And if we look at the dollars at 150 dollars a month, dollar adjusted terms, and in today's dollars, I mean you know that's like. I, Ten thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I would be a multimillionaire today right. if I buy Apple. So, um, yeah. So that those were kind of the beginnings, and then in high school, I actually fell away from both of those. You know, from both entrepreneurship and and writing code because I don't know, it wasn't cool, I guess. And got into sports, got very busy, and then it wasn't until college where I was going to get an electrical engineering degree and realized that a computer engineering degree, while is you know it's 
hardware focused, but it still had a lot of software engineering stuff in it. Um, so I, it was only another couple, couple of quarters to get that second major. And so I double majored in college and that kind of started pulling me back in the direction of coding. And uh, after I graduated, which was the late 90s, it was a dot-com boom. Um, I was on track to, you know, work, be an executive eventually at this this big electrical contractor that my dad worked for for years. And so I was just going to be, you know, a Mr. Executive guy. And I, it was, I don't know, it was an interesting dream. But I, well, I think about- a lot of us have these kind of weird ideas about what our life is going to be like when we're in high school or college, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, but it's not. It's not until it's not until the. What I say? The, the wheel hits the road or something that you start to realize. Oh, this is not so interesting at all. Yeah. Exactly. When you when you graduate from college and there's this whole plan laid out ahead of you, and then you start teaching yourself HTML at night, and then you learn Perl at night. I mean, this is exactly what I did. And I was going to the library and checking out books on Perl and loving it. And I started writing code. I started writing apps. And I'm, I'm working this day job that I did, did not like. And I lived in the Bay Area and I couldn't afford to move out of my dad's house, my parents' house. Right. You know, it was just this craziness of like, I could make twice as much money writing code and I love it. Like I'm doing it as a hobby. I would come home yeah. at night and write code, right? It's the same thing. It's the, yeah. the, the passion for it. So ultimately- Well, you know what? I, I, would, I just want to interrupt here and tell one quick related story. <laughs> when I was at, when I read out of college, I uh, I went to work for a trading firm in Chicago, and for a brief period, I was down on the floor of the tr- in the trading pits of the Chicago Board Office Exchange. You know, the, on the, and, and it were all these like, hundreds of guys standing around, screaming, yelling, in, in their trading jackets, trading you know options. And I was literally sitting down in the pits reading books on. I remember sta- reading Stanley Lipman's C Primer. <laughs> and I was reading books on algorithms and data structures, and the traders would look down at me like, what are you reading? And I couldn't get enough of it. You know, I loved it. And it was just, even in the most bizarre situation, literally sitting in, in, in the middle of a pit with people yelling and screaming, and I'm just sitting there reading about data structures and algorithms. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. My wife used to give me all kinds of grief because we lived in L.A. We'd go to the beach, and I would bring an ASP.NET book because I wanted to brush up on stuff. And everyone else either is just talking or they had like these, you know, novels or whatever. But man, to me, it was all about the code. That was my hobby. Even this is after I was doing it full time every day. Right. And I, I did that. We went to Cancun and I brought a .NET book and she wasn't happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I, talk, I, I mentioned on a previous uh, podcast how on our honeymoon, we're sitting down on the beach in Playa del Carmen and, I'm, and I was reading this 800-page book on artificial intelligence by Douglas Hofstetter, uh, the guy who wrote um, Gold Usher Bach. And Sandy keeps looking at me like, why are you reading that? I'm like, well, what do you want me to read? <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah. I was like, you want me to tell you about it? She's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't, don't ruin my vacation, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 18 months, I was you know, working for a construction company, didn't like it and realized that I knew how to code, had a degree, and the dot-com boom was in full swing. So late 99, I started writing code for a living, and I, I loved it. It was, I just couldn't even imagine, you know, a better career. And um, in 2000, got a different job, as you, what, you job hopped every six months back then, right? Right, yeah. And yeah. so got a different job and bought a house, and within a couple of months of buying a house, you know, the company went out of business as a lot of them did around that time. So at that time, I actually was, was working, I was a salaried employee, but I was working for a consulting firm. And so my first five projects were all in different languages. So it was like Perl, PHP, ASP 2.0, Cold Fusion, 
and there was one other, but it was this fascinating survey of all the web languages. Right. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I think that that ties into who we are as developers as well. I think if you love this stuff, that you love learning. And so- hey, Which came out top in your mind out of those, those four? At the time, uh, ASP and PHP were, I mean, this is 2000, 2001. And yeah. ASP and PHP were far ahead of the others. Um, Perl was, of course, more prominent, but it was, it was boy, CGI scripts are tough. I mean, they're yeah. just, they are very cumbersome. It's hard, it takes a lot of time to do anything. And uh, yeah, I really liked the utility. And, you know, it was, it was spaghetti code, but, um, but you could build things really quickly and they had a lot of power in them. And I think ASP, honestly, was, was number one for me back then. Because I, I remember first seeing the email function in PHP and I'd been doing C and uh, then moved on to Perl and doing different web stuff and CGI stuff. And when I saw that email function, I was just blown away. Like, man, there's so much utility in this. The, li the libraries have so much for you already. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so from there, I basically, um, I wound up getting a couple of different full-time jobs in the midst of, uh, you know, I eventually wound up going full-time uh, as a consultant for myself, kind of breaking out on my own um, around two, I think it was 2005, 2006. And so then I was a full-time .NET coder and I had been coding .NET since 2002 when it came out. When it came out. And um, during this time, I realized pretty quickly as a consultant that your time doesn't scale at all. And it's like, it's that, that phrase of trading dollars for hours. And I kind of yeah, looked yeah. after even about six months of it, I was like, man, this is so fun. And I'm making, you know, you make a lot of money as a consultant. I'm making all this money, but I, can I do this for 15 years or 20 years? Like, how am I going to keep chasing after contracts? It's and exhausting. Not, it, it really is. is. It's exhausting. It is. And, and it, at first it's freedom, you know, you, you kind of, you're, you're, you feel like you're so free because you don't have this nine to five. I was working from home. I wasn't traveling. I mean, it was great. But pretty quickly, it's like, wow, how sustainable is this really? And during the next downturn, how do I, like if I go a month without working, I'm basically, I have nothing. I'm living off savings. Right. And so right away, it was like, what, what can I find that is more scalable and more sustainable and more consistent than consulting work? And so that's when I, you know, again, there's a, there's a large group of programmers. We all want to build products because we hear that products are the way to go, right? It's the way to leverage your time and it's the way to build a sustainable income stream. And so that's the direction I headed early on. And I actually lucked out. And as I was building my first product, I found a product. Uh, it was uh, .NET forum software and it was called chitchat.net. It was for sale on eBay of all places. And I got it for a steal. Um, I got all rights, the copyright and everything. Can you, for, wait, can for, you tell us how much you got it for? Yeah, it was $150. <laughs> everything. Okay. And the, the wow. product sold. Yeah, the guy, he was a really nice guy. We actually stayed in touch for years after that, but he just wanted to get rid of it. The support burden was too much. The product sold for like, there was a $20 license and there was a $99 license. And I bought the entire, wow. everything, you know, for 150. So it was crazy. Wow. And that was my crash course right there into... I own a product and it was almost better that I did not write it myself because when you build a product, you know, you spend four months or six months doing this and you don't think about the marketing and you don't plan for that. But right. I owned this thing and all I, all I had to think about was marketing. And so it forced me right away to focus on finding customers and figuring out how to, how to make this product work from a marketing perspective. You know, that's something that Jess and I have talked 
a lot about because it's, it's something to easy that's very easy to struggle with as a developer because you create something and you're kind of like now what okay I got this thing exactly. I built it I think it's cool I have some of my friends using it they like it now what I mean and it's hard and I think a lot of companies seem to fall into the freemium model in, in such that I will charge for it now with the idea I'll charge for it later because I don't want to think about having to charge for it because I don't really know how Right. Yeah, so exactly. I, all I have to think about is sort of building it and hoping some people start using it. But you're right. I mean, when you're in the position where you're like, well, I don't have to, I don't have a reason to sit down and write code. So what am I going to do with my time? I need to figure out how to monetize this thing, turn this thing to a product. That's really interesting. That's right. And, you know, with any with any product that you that you build and try to market the product itself, like the code, the bits that you've written is maybe 20, I'm, I'm estimating here, but 20 to 25% of your effort. Mm -hmm. After that, it's documentation, it's support, it's building a sales website, refining that sales website, and then it's, it's learning how to market. Like it's, you know, doing AdWords, SEO, um, cold calling, if that's what you need to do, if that's what your business warrants. There's mm -hmm. all these other tasks. And the, the real, the actual, what we know how to do as developers is a tiny fraction of that, maybe 20 to 30%. But it's all the other stuff that we really, we don't learn in school and you don't even learn it working a full-time job. You really don't learn it until you do it. Why am I falling asleep when I hear you say all those different tasks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. They're like four-letter words to developers. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to do that stuff. It just doesn't sound like fun. It just sounds boring. It sounds tedious. It sounds like something that somebody else should do. But the problem is nobody else is going to do it. So, right, right. And it has to get done. Otherwise, you essentially got some code that's just going to rot on your hard drive like all the other code. Did you find it hard or did it just come naturally to you? I found it hard. I dropped 1200 bucks in about six weeks on Google AdWords and I made one sale for 99 bucks on Ooh. that. So right away, I dropped 1000 bucks. And I realized, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And that's when I realized I need, I need to find someone who's done this before. Like who, who can help, you know, cause I wasn't going to discover everything on my own. I knew it was going to be too painful. And that's actually, you know, when I started checking out all the books about this stuff, you know, all the startup books, trying to find blogs on it. And this was uh, 2003, 2004, and there really wasn't much. And even today, there's a lot more writing about startups, but there's, there's very few blogs and there's very, there's very few pieces of actionable information that a one-person startup or a one-person, a micro ISV, you might call them, uh, can really like can really learn from step-by-step, step, you know, exactly what I need to do. It's all, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of kind of fluffy fun things to read like well there's stuff like there's this. stuff like scratch your own itch and you know it, yes. and, and uh, work on something solve people's problems and right. pick a niche and stay focused and those things might be true but they're not like you said they're not actionable they're not yep. like here are a series of steps that you must take now yep. well the good news is rob's written a book called start small stay small a developer's guide to launching a startup so uh, I think that that's something good that we should talk about. Like where, where did that book come from? Obviously that this is the right point in the point in the show to talk about that. Yeah, that's right. So the, the reason I wrote the book is exactly what, what I was saying is I really have not found a resource that a developer could sit and read and say, this is a process that I can follow, you know, that I can start at step one and follow this process and find that niche, you know, that we're, that we're talking about. I do believe that you have to, if you're, especially if you're one developer, you have to pick a vertical niche. You just, you can't be horizontal. 
uh, you just you can't compete with the other companies you know who are who are doing horizontal niches. So you have well, to. Well, what about examples like say Balsamic, right? And Balsamic mockups. We've had Peldy on, and he was like one guy, and he did a fantastic job. Uh, you know, he's been very successful. I mean, is is his a niche in a different way, or how? Are you even are you aware of Balsamic mockups? Do you know what I'm? Oh, talking? absolutely. Yeah. No, Peldy and I were we email and we're talking about we're talking about our topics for business of software this year the conference in boston we're both speaking there so we were oh, okay. comparing notes yeah no he and i he and so, i are, are good friends so so how do you describe what he did or why is yeah. that a niche or what so well there's two things there's two things i'll say there one I, people bring peldy up a lot and he is an outlier absolutely he is not the norm so he yeah. is he is very far off the charts fabulously talented very smart and i mean way better marketer than than I am. Like he just knows his stuff. He's kind of off doing his own thing, but he's so he's like an artist of marketing. Okay. The stuff I put in my book is stuff that we can all do that you don't need to be an artist to do. You know what I'm saying? Like you can be kind of a normal developer and learn steps that allow you to to build a product and market it. Pelding knows how to do it naturally and he's got something that is like I won't say impossible to teach, but I don't know. It might be impossible to teach. Well, it's just like some people are rock stars and some people just have to do it the normal way. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's that's where I think the first point is, yeah, Peldy did it and he's in kind of a horizontal niche, but he is an outlier. Second thing is when he started, his his vertical niche was like developers and developers slash designers. I think it's spread out from there, but that those are definitely vertical niches, you know? Yeah. So I don't think he totally, he didn't build, um, you know, like invoicing software for everyone is a vertical niche, right? That's a huge market, like small businesses. That's mm -hmm. like so hard to reach. Whereas developers, he could, you know, he knew how to target them. So there's a, there's so a bit more thin slice there. So let me just run my uh, idea by you real quick while we're on the topic. So the, sure. the, the project that I've been working on for the past year is called App Ignite. And essentially what it is, is it's a way for non-developers to build web applications without having to write code. Um, with going through a series of wizards or be able to answer, you know, set, you know, properties. Uh, almost kind of like something you might imagine like posturous is to blogs or Wufu is to forms or Ning is to social networks. Um, except it's a little lower granularity, so you can create pretty much anything. But then you can also override stuff. You're, you can, if you know how to code, you can go in and, 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 and uh, write custom code. But it will allow somebody who is sort of a, a designer or business analyst or even a coder who wants to knock something out in a couple hours as opposed to spending three months on it. And, uh, you know, one, so this is clearly not a niche. You know, this isn't writing, this isn't uh, building websites for, you know, the lumber industry. So it's horizontal. But one thing I realize is that the market that I plan on targeting is designers because our front end, front end developers, front end web designers, because those people can already do the design. They usually know uh, HTML so they can do some custom stuff for, to look and feel, but they can't write code. Right. But if I just went after everybody, if I said, oh, this is for anybody who doesn't know how to code, it's how do I target those people? But designers are targetable because they're all, they all read the, or a lot of them read the same websites, a list apart or smashing magazine. And there's a bunch of big blogs that they follow. So I figure I can target those people. If I can give those people a tool that they can build web applications without having to hire web developers or, 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 uh, or outsource it, then they're, they have a whole new capability. So what's your question? What, my question is, what do you think of that? Is that, is that still going to work as a niche for me, or do you think I'm going to run into a, 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 a trouble there? 
I think that if you truly focus on designers and that mm -hmm. your entire marketing effort, including your your sales website, like your t if your tagline is, you know, an app that builds app apps for designers, like includes the word for designers in there, you're mm -hmm. truly targeting them. I think you can pull it off. Okay. I think some of the things you're going to have to do, you're going to have to do some, I'll say non-traditional. So I have kind of these these top tier marketing strategies that can build a sustainable, you know, traffic flow, like search engine optimization and uh, blogging and podcasting. And then there's kind of everything else. And I think you can, I think you can pull it off, but I think you're going to need to do a couple things. One, I think you're going to have to have a fantastic, fantastic design for your sales site. And I don't know if you're a, a designer or not, but you may, if you're not, I would definitely hire someone. And yeah, you know, absolutely. And, no, absolutely. And, I wouldn't launch it without a, a really nice design. And you don't need, you know, the funny thing is if you're not targeting designers, you don't need a fantastic design. Like I've seen very, I have successful products that use, you know, some, a WordPress theme and that's it. And they do just fine. And improving and spending money on the design does not help. But sure. if you're targeting designers, you're going to need a, a really good one. You're going to want to get in the CSS galleries, like you said. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, you, the, the great part is that designers are online and they are tweeting about it. Um, the thing is, it's a bit more hit and miss because if, if people don't talk about what you need, you know, if, I'm sorry, if people don't talk about your app, if they don't start talking about it organically, mm -hmm. y I'm not sure what other traffic sources you're going to have to fall back on. So right. when I say that, like, I have a friend who owns a, a niche design site. It's actually called BidSketch, bidsketch.com. Yeah. And it's proposal software made for designers. And he's targeting the exact same niche. And he's followed these things I'm, I'm talking about. And he did, he got into all the CSS galleries and just got all this designer traffic. And then designers started blogging about him. And so it's great. You know, it's this upward spiral, word of mouth. But he also had a bunch of search keywords that they were searching on. There were, you know, web design proposals and web design proposal software and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he was able to fall back on and expand his business through that, through these SEO keywords. So he does a bunch of SEO and draws a lot of users uh, through that. So what I'm saying is, yes, I think it can work. I think it's a little riskier than having, like if, if you, I don't know if you've done keyword research, but it's a little riskier than, than if you had some exact keywords and you knew, oh, 500 people a month are searching for um, an app to build apps for designers or whatever, you know, some term that describes yeah. your app. Basically. Well, you know, cause it sounds like a lot of the, the, the safer approach, which is what you recommend for a lot of people is pick a very small niche that you can do research on keywords and you can, you can, determine that there is demand for it. And something that I've, you know, admitted on the on the show is that I'm trying to build something that I want to exist that I think is going to revolutionize the way web apps are built um, for um, or at least by a lot of people. That it'll bring it it'll bring the capability to a lot bigger number of people. And when you try and make a step forward like that, you're 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 going ahead of the demand. People don't even know to expect that something like that can exist really. So you're right. It's a, it's a riskier play. And the the plus is it though for me, and, and this is a personal issue, this is less a um, a business issue. It's something that I'm really excited about that I could work on for years because it's a big, what I view as a big important problem. Um, but I also acknowledge that it will be harder because of the of the issues you just outlined there is that it's it's hard to say, well, look at, you know, look at keyword demand and things like that. Right. So... Yeah, yeah, no, 
yeah, I com- I completely agree. As long as you kind of acknowledge that, and it sounds like you do, that that yeah, you, you're taking a bit more of a risk. But it's if it's way more interesting for you, as you've said, and you're just way more passionate about it than, you know, picking a safer niche, then then so be it. You know, like there's no <laughs> nothing wrong right. with with launching it. And if it doesn't pan out, you're going to learn a heck of a lot from it. Yeah. So and, and one, one last thing I'll say on this, Justin, and I, sure. I'll, I'll turn it. I'm sorry to uh, take up so much uh, bandwidth here, but go for it. Um, you know, so one of the reasons I allow App Ignite to to make as much progress and to not die, because like I said, we've worked on this for over a year. My the uh, guy owned the friend of mine I'm working on this with, and is that um, there's two of us, and we work on it every day, probably anywhere from one to three hours a day, and then I put in a whole another eight to ten hours in the weekend. And we've been doing this for years. It's been a lot of work into it, a lot of progress, but it's because there's two of us. If it was just me by myself, the true micropreneur, I think taking on something as large as App Ignite would be just way too risky. I, I would I would say you know, don't look at me as an example of something that's say shrewd, a shrewd thing to do. You know, it's something that's fun, and it's something that's risky, and it's something that I'm doing. But I'm not necessarily yeah. What I'm doing is the is the sort of the best risk reward thing you could be doing with your time. If what you want to do is just write some software that you have enjoy writing that could make some money. Right, and I, I you know the biggest kind of danger points. There's a couple danger points where developers basically bail on their product where they just stop working on it. And one of them is exactly where you are, where it's, they get a few months into it. You're more than a few months now, but they get a few months into it. And then they're just like, gosh, working every night and every weekend is a drag. And I don't even know if anyone's going to buy this. And it just kind of gets hard. And so, yeah, I working more than four or six months, I, actually discourage developers from doing unless they can launch in four to six months because there's a huge huge drop something out there basically release early release often yeah yeah although i see i don't i don't actually like that (laughs) i don't like that because um that specific term because you know there's there's kind of two types of developers there's the kind who they've worked in corporate environments their whole life and for them release early release often is big they have they need to change their mindset but for some 22 year old kid coming out of college they'll release early and they'll release after a week of development. I, and I've seen apps like that. I'm sure you have too, where it's like, this app doesn't do anything. So yeah. they almost, they don't, you need, they need to not listen to that. They need to release less frequently, you know? Yeah. So anyways, that's a bit of an aside. So uh, why don't we take a step back then and, 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 and talk about some of your, you know, what ended up happening with uh, your first uh, forum software and then and what products you, what you learned from that and, and what you tried after that, we sort of in a chronological order. And so we can build towards your, you know, follow along with your learning curve. Sure. So with chitchat.net, I did wind up turning um, a profit on AdWords eventually. And I learned a ton about SEO. And those were kind of the first, you know, marketing areas that, that I focused on. Um, I owned chitchat.net for a couple of years and then I had my first child and sold it. And I sold the whole app and made a good profit on it. And it was a, I, overall, it was just a great experience. And I realized then that I wanted to do it again. And mm-hmm. so I, I started building a couple, I had built, you know, it's funny, the timeline at this point is so fuzzy. It's like six years ago, but I built a couple other applications. I built one called Feedshot and uh, that was at feedshot.com. And that was like the first blog search submission engine. Um, back in the day, you had to submit your blog to search engines and this did it manually and charge, or this did it automatically and charged a couple bucks. Right. And, um, from that one, I got, I got a huge amount of buzz early on because it was the first one and it went viral and I got all this traffic. But 
I was kind of in this free beta mode. I was trying a freemium model. I'm very, I'm actually anti freemium model after mm -hmm. that. And after, you know, a number of other experiences with, with other micropreneurs, the freemium model works great. If you're venture backed, if you have a lot of money to back it up and you can scale huge, but I've never, never seen it work for a, either a micropreneur or a small company. And I, I can list a bunch of companies. I won't. What would you suggest an alternative, like a 30 day trial or something like that? Otherwise absolutely, pay or? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. You can definitely do trials, but what you'll see with, I mean, 37 signals used to have a free account and they kind of do now, but it's really hard to find. And Jason, um, what's his name? Oh, and Jason Freed. Freed. Yep. He spoke on a podcast, uh, gosh, within the past few months and was basically saying like, yeah, their free account just never, it, they never converted. Right. Um, for them, and there's a there's a company called Hittail that did the same thing. They did away with their free account. Bid Sketch, as Maya mentioned before, did away with their free account. I, I have about four or five others. I was going to write a talk about this, but um, in essence, it's super super. I won't say it never works for micropreneurs or small companies, but I mean maybe it's one in five hundred or one in a thousand. So it's just not. It, there's way too many people trying it for for how often it works. It's actually funny because Ruben, um, who who owns BidSketch, uh, I know that he's doing a, a guest blog post for you about this issue. And completely separately of this podcast, a few days ago, he he emailed me because of my website, Plugio, that has the freemium model. And we've been talking, he wanted to interview me and, and include uh, Plugio as one of the one of the websites that has the free it's, it's funny because Justin and I just literally had this discussion over the weekend uh, and uh, you know I, I think my suggestion was either you know because he was talking about potentially just trying to increase eyeballs and turn around and, and flip it and just sell the company to a, a larger company that is that is giving away free Twitter client accounts because Plugio is essentially if you're unaware is essentially like a power Twitter client right. Yep, and you know, my suggestion was like, well, hey, if you're just trying to flip it and you think that they'll pay for eyeballs and, and uh, you want to, then maybe you just give it everything away from free. But then you risk cannibalizing any and all revenue you have. Or this, the other thing is just get rid of the free account or limit it severely and then just do the pay. That way you don't have to worry about scaling. And I don't, Justin, after that, Justin was sort of going to take a step back and figure out what he wanted to well, do. The, I mean, the, right? after discussing with Ruben today, um, the interesting thing that I found out is that Plugio is doing incredibly well in terms of its conversion rate, but it still doesn't make hardly any money for me. Like, so basically it has a 3% conversion rate, which is ridiculously high for freemium. What, what percent, so 3%? 3% conversion rate. That is rate, really yeah. high, wow. Which is, which is really high, yep. but, um, but it's still, it still just doesn't make enough money. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so I, that's why I think I'm just gonna move to the 30 day free trial. But I mean, the other thing that Ruben was saying was, when he moved to the point where you actually needed to give your credit card details for your th for your free 30-day trial versus just allowing them to do it without signing up, he's saying it's basically like a 60% conversion ratio at that point from the people who actually go to the trouble of putting in their credit card details to try it out. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Now, I'm, I'm a little confused. But could you repeat that again, Justin? I don't think I quite understood that. Okay, so there's, there's, two, there's two different ways you can do a 30-day free trial. One of them is you can just get them to do it. They don't need to give you a credit card. You just let them sign up. They try it out for 30 days. Then if they, you then basically terminate their account and say sign up. And if they sign up, they give you their credit card then. Another right. way you can do it is you can do it the way that Indonero does it and BidSketch does it and many other places, probably some of uh, Rob's, Rob's software. And you sign up, but to get your 30-day free trial, you've got to give your credit card details Right. at the beginning. So 
if you do that, the percentages are ridiculously high compared to the other version where you just let people do a 30-day free trial without giving you credit, credit card details. A lot less people sign up, but of the people who sign up, the conversion ratio is rather large. Right, because if someone's going to give you their credit card information start, then they're very serious about it at that point in time already. Yeah. They've sort of self-selected. Okay, so, um, well, Justin, well, then what, what are you thinking? What, what's sort of your, your thinking after talking with Ruben? The, the problem is, is that my market is so, like, I've got, like, you know, a thousand competitors, and they will offer the same thing for free, basically. So it's, it's kind of, it's a difficult one. I don't, it's, it's my market so, so specific. I don't know whether it works. And I think that there's, a, there's an exception to every rule. So I may turn around and make mine 30 a day and then you have to pay. And then all of a sudden, I just don't get any more users. Have you thought about just trying it, doing it for 30 or 45 days? And if you get no more users, then you, you stop doing it. Yeah, I have thought about that. And I think that's probably what I will do next. But I'd love to also do the thing of just putting the credit card, you know, and sure. like, see what happens then. Yeah, I mean, would 30, day, 30, 45 days be a little short period? I mean, shouldn't you try it for a few months or something at least to get some good data on that? Or do you think a month is enough to know? Uh, it depends on how many people you have signing up, you know, how many uniques per uh, day or per, or not uniques, but how many, yeah, how many individuals are signing up? Because, yeah, Ruben, when Ruben did it, he has enough volume that I think he did it for 30 days. He did a 30-day trial for 30 days, and that was enough to, for him to be convinced that ending his free plan was was definitely in his interest. Let's say I did put the paid plan on the front door and you just had to give your credit card details for the 30-day free trial. I do kind of believe that that will give people the perception that the product has more value. Absolutely. You know, yeah. because there is no free, va free plan, so they'll feel like it has value. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, I think that trying, uh, you know, a 30-day free trial, I mean, I think you have to go that route. And then I think testing like Ruben did. I mean, so Ruben and I, and I talked through all of this stuff before he did it. And we did talk about the three different options of having a free plan and then going to a trial and then going to a trial with credit card information up front. Those are your three options. And right from the start, we were both like, you got to test all of them. We, it's pure conjecture, which one's going to work the most. And so he tried all three of them. And, you know, that's, I think you'll wind up probably wind up doing the same. I mean, it's the only way to know for sure. Now, was it that he ended up just having a bunch of free users that had just a super low conversion ratio and it just took up yep. a lot of customer support and, and server capacity? Yeah. Now, it, so the first part, yes, he had a bunch of users and the conversion rate was astronomically low. And I don't, I don't honestly remember what it was, but I think it was in the point, like it was like 0.1 or point something percent. It was right. very, very low. Um, it wasn't a huge support burden and it wasn't a huge uh, server issue but he just looked at it and he said wow you know all these customers have signed up and it's just a shame it's kind of a shame that you know that they're not fu essentially funding new features and helping me build the app you know because he's doing it on the side and he really the more money he gets the better he can make the app well essentially it's just not fair right yeah i mean people are using it and they're not they're not they're not spreading the word to other people who are converting they're not converting then what, what's the point right you know um, what do you think about uh, when you're in your beta period? So you, you, you go into some public beta. I mean, do you believe in public beta? Should you say, okay, there's going to be a public beta for something like three months, and then we will start charging after 30 days after that ends? I mean, do you have any thoughts about how that should work if, if you're not going to have a free version? Yeah, I I don't like public betas. Again, I, I'm talking from the perspective of either a one person or a, a few person company, a smaller company. Okay. And I'm talking about some fairly niche products. Um, but I do think this applies to, you know, most of the 
uh, I, it applies to everything, all the startups we've talked about so far. But I, so I don't like public betas. And the reason is, is because I, I think that before you la ever launch a product, six months or a year, or as soon as you know that you're going to do this thing, you need to buy a domain name, you need to get a landing page up, and you need to start collecting emails for a launch. And you need to, to build that list. And if you can put a list together of a few, even a few hundred people who are interested in this product, then you've really kind of, you've almost built a minimum viable product here. You know, you've all, just that one landing page can tell you, hey, a hundred people in a month signed up for this list. I'm like, you get super motivated. It keeps you going while you're yeah. writing this thing. That's so, just You just did one today, didn't you, Jason? Yeah. You know, I've been meaning to do this for months and months. I mean, I've been talking about it on the podcast probably since the end of the, I think it was like November or something like that, maybe. Or no, what was it? Yeah, it was like November, I think. And I just never got around to building a, uh, a page. And, you know, we have a fair number of listeners now on our podcast. And I figured, you know, there's some percentage of them are going to be interested or at the very least curious about Epic Night, but they have nowhere to sign up, no way to sign up. <laughs> so right. I finally got around to doing it today. And part of it was after I listened to one of your podcasts and I was like, all right, I got to get off my butt and just do this. I mean, even though it's going to take me a little bit of time to design something and write up the copy and get the form working and everything. Um, I just did it finally. <laughs> so uh, that's cool. You know, but, a, a couple questions about that. Um, well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Jace, just quickly, uh, just to tell the listeners, that's epicnight.com. Right. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. Uh, <laughs> and the, the other thing is, is that um, Rob's book is startupbook.net. Okay. And uh, I'm sorry, what were you going to say, uh, Rob? Oh, I was just going to give a, a tip for getting one of those landing pages up super fast. Okay. Because when I, when I launched my book, I, did, I followed this exact same plan. Like I totally, the, the reason I say all this stuff is because I've done it. I rarely say something that I haven't tested myself. I'm, I'm, Pretty, I'm a big split tester. I'm big into analytics. So I'm big into knowing numbers, you know? And so when I talk about collecting emails and then launching to people, I, I do this for all any product I launch and I did it for my book as well. Mm -hmm. And I got a test page up, or I'm sorry, I got a landing page up in, gosh, it was under an hour. And right. I, I, you install WordPress and then you install the Launchpad theme. Launchpad theme is a one-page theme and it's ex built up exactly for this. It just puts right. a form up there. The design is killer. It's like a black background with, with orange. Certainly you can change it, but I left it default and I wrote copy in like 10 minutes and I just, you know, put a very basic thing about the book. And then of course I had a MailChimp form that I just slapped in there. So right. that's the quickest way I found by far to get a launch thing up. Just a tip for listeners. That's, that's a good idea. Um, so, you know, if, if you're going to get up a launch, if you're going to launch, I mean, you obviously the point you made earlier is that you should be launched within four to six months. You shouldn't be working on this thing for a year or more. I mean, that's just, you know, as we've said, and as I've admitted with App Ignite, that's taking on a lot more risk than you want. Um, but how many, you know, what would be the number of signups or emails that you're expecting to, what would be sort of the range of like of, of good to great? Um, well, kind of so the, yeah, the first thing, it does depend on your price point. So if you have okay. a very, you know, a very inexpensive product, if you have a, it's a one-time fee of $19 and you're building um, like a PDF generator, an image, I don't know, something that's super simple and cheap, then obviously right. you're going to want a lot more than if you're selling, you know, $300 invoicing software, or if you're selling a SaaS application with a subscription. But with that said, if I was selling it at super cheap, item, you know, for 19 bucks or something, I would want between 500 and a thousand emails on that list. Okay. <laughs> At least. Okay. Right. Um, 
And if I was selling an expensive item, I would want at least, I'd want between one and 200 or more. Obviously the more the better, but if I didn't have a hundred on the list, I'd be kind of sketchy on it. Um, right. And, and it also, there's a couple other things that play into it as in terms of how much detail you give on your landing page of what the app is and the kind of the price range of the thing. Because if, if you don't specify the price range and then you wind up pricing it too high, your conversion rate's gonna be so low. You know, if you get 100 people on your list and you convert 1%, you sold one copy on your launch day. And that's just terrible, right? You don't wanna work for six months and sell, make $300 on launch day. Launch day should be your biggest day for your first year. You should make more sales on that one day in the 48 hour period than you should your, your first year, unless you take off viral or some, again, an outlier situation, unless you do that. Uh, what, if you, well, what if you don't know, have your pricing model quite figured out? Like for me, I don't quite have that figured out and I'm not sure I will know right away. Is there a way of signaling that in the copy without being too specific? Like this is going to cost X dollars a month or whatever. Well, are you, are you looking at a subscription model, like a SaaS? Is it a SaaS app? You know, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. You know, I've talked with Justin about this a little on this show. And, you know, if, if someone could come and build a complete web application, right? Like they could build, say, some Basecamp, right? They could build an entire project management app. Um, and they could, and, and the question is, do I want to host that on my site? Or do I want them to, or do I allow them to export the entire thing and run it on their own servers? In which case, if they export the whole thing, maybe it'd be like $1,000 to export an entire website or web application. But then again, I might think of it more like a, having a development, uh, a high-end development program. So it's, maybe it's $50 a month, $100 a month, because even if you build a web application, you're still going to want to change it and tweak it and add things, and you're not going to want to have to go in and change the code. I mean, you could. You could use AppIgnite to generate most of it and then have, your, have a programmer go in and do some tweaks and just say, I don't, I, don't, I don't need AppIgnite anymore. But that would still be much more expensive to hire a coder, even for an hour, to go on and make a few changes if you could have maintained the uh, the App Ignite account and then gone to make tweaks. In which case, I might charge, you know, I don't know, fifty dollars a month, a hundred dollars a month, two hundred dollars a month. I mean, who knows? Whatever, depending on maybe how sophisticated the application is. Right. Okay. So in in your case, given that, I would not mention price at all, and I would just collect all the emails you could, just collect right. them, get them in there, and then as you approach launch and you sort this out, you need to talk to a few of those customers. And if you know some of those customers personally, you know, or kind of through networks, those are the best guys to send direct emails to and say, uh, to help me with pricing. Like, here's, here, here's what I'm thinking. Let's talk about this. And then arrive at a price that is, that is reasonable. Yeah, because okay? the, the way I'm thinking about it, I mean, is that, you know, if, 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 you're, a, if, you're, a, if you're not a programmer, let's say, and you want to build a web application, whether you're internal to a company and you want to build something for your department or whether you're external and you have an idea for something, well, building a web application, if you're not a programmer, is very expensive and very time-consuming and very kind of scary, uncertain process because you don't know how long or how much money it's going to cost. And um, so, therefore, if you paid what might seem like a lot of money for software, it's still going to be magnitudes less, in a sense, than what you would expend, spend if you had to build it yourself. Now, if um, you are a programmer, you might scoff at doing it. You're like, ah, you know, I'll code it myself. But it's like, well, really, are you really going to spend weeks or months building this when you could just have it up in a few hours or even a day if you spend a lot of time tweaking around with it? Um, so, in what sense, I want to I make sure that I'm comparing the value of what this thing will build for you versus how much time or money you'd have to spend otherwise. What are your other options? 
Yeah, it sounds to me, and it sounds to me like you're going to want a couple tiers of pricing, actually. Like, yeah, you know, I think so. I think so. Right. Where where some people may only be able to or only willing to pay 19 bucks a month, and that's the great that's a great price for them. And then other people, 59 to 99 or 49 to 99 may be optimal. And that that's I mean, it's always good to have tiers of pricing because there's no one optimal price for all your customers, right? Right. Rob, uh, just quickly to, to let you know, one of the thing, one of the startups that I never got around to actually starting, but did get around to building a lot of business plan for, was a, a, a concept called Mash API, which was a lot like uh, what Jason's doing, but just only a backend. But one of the pricing models that we looked at and that we realized made the most sense was actually based on the number of calls, because essentially it's it, it's the resources that the people are using that you can actually eat. so it's like a metered a metered cost. So it's it's combining that metered cost along with unlocking features. So you could so for example on plan one they may just have like a low metered cost and no analytics access, and on plan two then they they get a lot more, um, a lot more transactions that this that the web server can serve, a lot more pages the web server can serve, and they also then get built in analytics and things like that. I think that's a really uh, good idea. The only thing with App Ignite that I'm thinking differently is that. Um, if I host everything, so if you build your web application and I host it, then that would be perfect. Now, if I'm going to allow people to say, export the entire thing and run it on their own servers, and they maintain their account or their application on AppIgnite, so they come in and say, oh, I need to add these fields, and I need to add some relationships between some records, and I need to change some views around, and then I'm going to hit export, and it, re and it sort of updates their remote copy that's running on Rackspace or MediaTemp or whatever their, wherever their ISP is. In that case you know, that wouldn't work at all. And I may want to follow that in the beginning because one thing I'm thinking is that, and, and, and Rob may have some things to say about this, is that, you know, I'm one guy and, and as I scale into this, I'm going to be consulting for a while, which means if someone has a problem with their app going down, I may not be able to provide the kind of support. Whereas if they had the thing, if they had exported the whole thing, like say, the, you know, like WordPress model where WordPress initially was just something you would install locally, then yeah. it's 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 sort of I've I've you know they've exported the code the HTML the PHP the the schema everything it's all running on their server and I can help them but I'm not sort of real time support for oh crap our server's down I mean that's their issue but then as I grow into it maybe six months or a year down the road we're saying okay now we have a host adoption we have redundant servers at different data centers we have on call admins we're monitoring everything but I just one thing I want to be careful of is say I don't want to be able to to imply that I can provide a level of hosting support than I'm really capable of, at least to start. What do you think of that, Rob? Well, first off, I think if you're targeting designers and you mm -hmm. really are going after that niche, I think that you're... I question if they're going to want to do the export thing and run it on their own servers at all. Yeah. Um, and I question if you're going to make any sales at a high price point, like design this and then it's $500 or $1,000 to download. It's just yeah. much more palatable for a designer to come and try it because you're, you're really going to be untried at first, right? right. There, there's going to be some buzz, you know, if you're able to generate it and there's going to be some people blogging about it, look at this interesting thing. But boy, to come and pay a thousand bucks or 500 bucks, it's just a big stretch. But for someone to come and pay 19 bucks a month, is just so much more reasonable these days. So my, my inclination in terms of price and actually converting people is that you're going to get a lot more people in the door if you, you know, if you go with a monthly pricing model like that and you don't go with a metered thing, at least at first. You can always expand into these things, but designer, I mean, I'm just thinking of, des of a designer's mind. Like he comes to the thing and he says, oh, I char you, you charge five cents per call or five cents per disk space used or it's just very 
it's it, it's a little confusing, you know. Yeah, but it, has, up front. it has to be metered in the sense that you, you you know you have to have a limit of calls for whatever plan you're on. So because because otherwise you're going to go bankrupt if if you sell you know nineteen dollar plans, but people use more than nineteen dollars worth of bandwidth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, having having three tiers, like I said, you know, a nineteen, a forty nine, and a ninety nine, and maybe a one ninety nine. That's like super heavy duty. Though I think that's fantastic. But I think metering it in terms of like Amazon EC two, you know, where it's like five cents an hour or fifty cents an hour. I don't think that's a good way to go at all. Y yeah, yeah, sorry, okay. that's okay. that's not what I, I didn't quite mean. That I, okay. I meant the, the the tiered concept sure. of where you okay. metered. So once once they tip that that level, then it goes up to the next tier. Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking maybe what you could do is is you could look at it in ways of like level of sophistication, like a, like a single table, single record type, which is almost like a form, right? I mean, that's pretty cheap. But if someone says, okay, we have three record types, you know, or something has like 10 record types or 30 record types, and I say record type, some people might interpret that as a model, you know, so if we say look at a, a project management app, a project would be a record type, a task would be a record type, a milestone would be a record type, a user would be a record type. Right. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If it's not simple, people aren't going to buy it. So the, the, the right. plan structure needs to be incredibly simple right. in its own right. So one thing is you could talk about the level of sophistication of the app, so the amount of records, uh, table types, and stuff like that. Another could be the amount of, of, of sort of um, records, actual records. So you have 10,000 records in a table, 100,000, a million. Um, I don't know. So I, 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 you know, it's right. I have to figure out a way to describe it in simple terms, but I don't want someone be, to be able to build some very sophisticated, you know, app that has 30 tables and, you know, 400,000 users and $20 a month. I mean, obviously that's right. Kind of, right. Whereas where somebody else who built like a simple, you know, like an email collector for, you know, or a simple form, or maybe it's like two forms and, and they're having to pay, you know, $50 a month or a hundred dollars a month for that. So I got to figure out a way to sort of break it and explain it, break it down and explain it. Yeah, I'm right. just trying to figure That's out like question. what level of support is going to be required and how much I can provide yeah. to start out. It, how do you scale to that? So in essence, yeah, so I deal with this a lot because I deal with a lot of one-person companies and one-person right. startups. And so any, and of course, SaaS is the way to go these days, right? It gives yeah. you, as a provider, it gives you a recurring model, allows you to, you know, not have all the support of having downloaded software, all the benefits we know about. But um, what I've found is that in almost every case, if, if, your app is stable and your host is stable, it is extremely rare that you will have a widespread outage. Very, very rare. Okay. And unless someone has built so unless someone has built an app on your platform that is completely integrated into their daily workflow. And I think that's gonna be a while before they do that. You know, if someone built like their source control <laughs> repository. Right on right. your app, then you, man, you hose the whole dev team when it goes down. People aren't going to build that. They're going to build little forms. They're going to build little, you know, things, right? To start with, mm -hmm. you're going to have a long time before you have someone who's flipping out because their thing went down. Because if their form goes down for an hour or five hours, it's, yeah, there'll be a little miffed, but you're not going to get raked across the coals all over the internet for that. So yeah. my, my inclination and what I, again, what I've seen from experience is as a one person startup, you can absolutely provide uh, you know, ample support as long as it's not some mission critical thing they have to do in real time. And I would guess it's going to be a very long time before someone has something like that on your platform. Yeah, Plugio has only gone down a couple of times, and um, and so I think what I'm saying is my experience uh, matches up with what Rob says. Yeah. yeah so. well, one last thing I want to say, and then we can move on. I don't mean to to take up so much of the time on Epic Night, but I really wanted to get your input on a few of these things. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, is you know, I was talking with 
Taylor. Taylor is a designer friend of uh, ours that we had on the show about a um, couple months ago. And I, when I first explained Appignite to him, because I was using Appignite for a project that we were both working on, he was the designer on this project. And I was explaining how he could use it as a designer to build the whole thing. And I kind of at the time was thinking more along the lines of exporting it as opposed to hosting it. And he's like, well, why do you have to export it? I don't want to set up an account. Can't you just host it? Like, he got really frustrated yeah. and yeah, really was like, like uh, I don't want to do that. It's like, it's like when someone comes to me and says, oh, you know, when I have ISP, it's like, oh, all you have to do is SHH, SHHN and get into the Linux thing and do all this Linux crap. And I'm like, dude, I'm not a Linux guy. I don't want to do that. Can I just have the data? database and the in the modules installed do i really have to do that and yep. i guess i because I, I could hear the pain in his voice he did not want to have to set up an external account and export stuff and install stuff that was exactly what he didn't want yep and so. that increases your support burden as well because if he downloads it and then goes and tries to install it and for whatever reason typically not your code's fault typically it's crappy server crappy host some weird configuration thing it doesn't work you're going to be fixing it you and I, I, we deal with this. We have .NET Invoice is one of our products, and it's an installed app. And I wish that I could make it a SaaS app because we spend just so much time dealing with other people's server issues, you know. So I really, yeah, I really think that that. that and by the way, Jason, that's that's a pretty good reason for for multi-tenant database schema. I know you don't think that you can do it, but when you have everything running from the same one, then you're you know you're only ever dealing with one one support issue for your whole well, app. Well, they are. All the apps are, you know, each app has its own database, but they're all running on the same database server. There's no point in having all the tables in one database. It's just right. a way of segmenting them. So, um, okay. but Rob, I have to say, just just the, I, I think your argument that you've made, a couple of your arguments you made, has made this whole thing, uh, this whole uh, podcast extremely valuable to me because I think you probably switched in my mind how I'm going to think about selling and marketing this product. So I, I, yeah, cool. I appreciate your feedback. This is yeah. very, very good points. So I'm I think I'm done. Help. I'm out. Justin, I, I, got, I got what I need. I think I'm done. <laughs> this podcast isn't useful to anyone else, but it's incredibly useful to Jason. I think we can just kind of hang up and move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's get back uh, to some of the stuff. I've got something. Yeah. So I've got something to ask there. So Rob, um, one, one of the blog posts that I read that you've written is called The, the Warren Buffett of Websites. And uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that's a recent post and it's actually kind of a new area that I'm that I'm looking at at I don't know, at creating a blog or a podcast around right now. Cuz historically I've been, you know, I've talked a lot about startups and I've found that there there are kind of these these three there's two camps of people. There's the the startup, the passion people, right? We want to and it's it's us the coders, the the creatives. We want to be passionate about our idea. If I'm not passionate about it, I don't want to build it. You know, it's stupid. Even if it doesn't make money, I just I want to build this thing because it's so fun. And then there's, you know, kind of this, I don't know, there's a different way to make income. And I I've been talking to a few friends and I've been saying there's passion income and there's passive income. And I've been kind of getting, they say poo poo the passive thing, you know, it just sounds hokey, but it's, I, in my experience, I own a bunch of different products. I own some software products that I enjoy working on. And then I own some websites that are not software products. Um, one of them is the website is apprenticelinemanjobs.com. And it's a totally niche website. It's a job board. And it makes me a good chunk of money every month. And I have no passion for the niche, but it allows me the freedom to do the things I am passionate about, like write this book. 
and work in the Micropreneur Academy, which I assume we'll talk about later. Um, because the book is not profitable, right? You don't make money from a book. And even the Micropreneur Academy is one of my lowest hourly paying products that I own. Um, I actually make about somewhere around 20 bucks an hour to 25 bucks an hour for the time I invest in the academy. But I love it because it's dealing with software entrepreneurs. And that's what I love doing and talking about. Whereas these, I have a few passive sites that are just crazy on the hourly rate, you know, like four figures per hour, literally. I mean, I, and I, I don't like to talk about this. I don't, I'm not the guy holding up a check, you know? So I don't, right. I don't tend to go into this at all, but it's just, it's, I've realized like, wow, these passive sites have allowed me to do all this other stuff that I do. The reason I wrote a book that I can invest time in my blog, that I have a podcast, um, that I, you know, sp I spend quite a bit of time with my family. I actually only work part time. I don't work Fridays. I work about six, seven hours a day, Monday through Thursday. All of that stuff, the only reason I can do that is because of these websites that I've purchased. And so, and I've built a couple of them too. So, so you've, put, you've purchased them. I've purchased some of them and I've built some. The, the most successful ones I have purchased. Yes. Do you think and, that's just uh, random or do you think that that's no, a reason No, for it's that? not. So I'm learning, you know, after doing this for a few years, uh, we talked earlier about like when you build a software product, there's a there's 20 to 30% of it is the code. And right. then there's a chunk of it that's like support and, and other stuff. And then there's this big chunk that is your market risk. And it's like your market risk is perhaps your biggest risk because we all know we can build, we can build apps. Right, Jason, you know you're going to be able to build App Ignite. Like, that's not, it's not a risk. Whereas your market really is your biggest risk right now. You don't know if there are people out there who are going to be willing to buy it. And right. so when you, when you buy an app, you know there's a market for it because you already see there's revenue for the thing. You already see the search traffic coming in or whatever, you know, however traffic is coming in. So you eliminate your largest source of risk by buying something. Now, there's a flip side to it, right? Buying stuff does, you know, it, it has an inherent risk. You could feasibly get scammed. There are ways to learn to get around that. Um, you could get something that makes less than the person says. I've had that happen to me a few times. I've, I spent $1,300 on an app six months ago. Well, it's about a year ago now. And I haven't made any money from the thing. Guy said it was making 100 bucks a month. I checked it out. It looked legit. And I, so I, I basically lost 1300 Luckily, I've had enough other successes that you know it kind of goes out in the wash. And then the other thing is, if you're a passion player, you know, if you really want to build an app, then, then this, is pro this is not for you. You know, this, this is different. It's kind of a whole different way of looking at things. Well, so so what, what is the theory behind, like the, in your blog post, you kind of outline, like there's, there's a reason why you've called it the Warren Buffett of websites. I was wondering if you could talk about the actual theory of, of what, what you're One what thing I want to say is that it's essentially he's being an investor and not a maker. Yes. In this case, right? Exactly. I'm that investing. Is, that is I'm, yeah. Okay. Yep. No, and that's exactly, that's a great, uh, you know, way to define it. I, so I used to invest in real estate. I owned a, a, several houses in Los Angeles during the boom and really didn't make much money from them because we had the big crash. But the plan was to hold on to these things, you know, for 20, 30 years, get them paid off and to be an investor and to have this passive income of rents coming in after you pay the home off and to have appreciation and stuff. So I, I dove in, I, I took a bunch of tests and I almost got my real estate license. And it was all about, you know, uh, kind of building up this side income that would allow me the freedom to do what I really want to do, which is write code, deal with software entrepreneurs, you know, to do the stuff that I'm now doing, write a book. Like I really, these were personal goals of mine that I could never do when I was working full time. So 
that's this this Warren Buffett of websites post that I made was was trying to say this is what I've done. I've bought these sites. This has nothing to do with website flipping. Like website flippers, you hear this all the time and it's just, it's late night TV crap. It's right. just people saying, oh, look, I can build this. And they build just junk websites and sell them for a hundred bucks. But if, if you build 30 of them in a month, you can make $3,000. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. So I, I want to distance myself so far from that. And so that's why I was saying it's a long-term value investing approach. And so anything I buy, I only buy with the intent of keeping it for many, many years and having it as a residual income source that then allows me to, to do the, the stuff that I really want to do. So how, do, I mean, if, if you're buying a website, is that the typical ratio? You'll spend a thousand on something that makes a hundred a month kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it depends on how much, um, it depends on a number of factors. Most important is like how many hours per month it requires of maintenance. Okay. But the, the values tend to be from about four times monthly net profit up to somewhere around 18 or 20 times net profit. So, so you are right. If, if it makes a hundred bucks a month in net profit, if you have to put it, if it's almost like a consulting quasi consulting stuff, then yeah, you're going to pay like 400 bucks for the thing. But if it's super automated and it's been going for years, tons of history, and it's all organic search engine traffic, and it's like number one in Google for this term, then you could, you will easily pay two grand, you know, 20 times your monthly net profit for something like that. I see. So, so then, that's interesting. Yeah. So then if, so, if something's worth, if something's generating a thousand dollars net and you, you automate it, like crazy. And that's something else I talk a lot about is automating. And, you know, I have a couple of virtual assistants who, who work for me. If you can automate something, if you can buy something that's making a thousand bucks a month, but it requires a bunch of work and you can get it for five grand. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> if you can buy something that's making a thousand bucks a month, but it requires a bunch of work and you can get it for five grand and then you can just totally automate it. You can pretty quickly, you know, be making a thousand bucks a month without much effort. And, uh, yeah. Well, how many of these? Uh, how many of these um, websites or I don't know individual products do you own at this point? So I own a total, including I own a couple of software products, and then I okay. own a bunch of websites. So I own a total of, well, I own ten that generate any type of income. I own okay. about another ten that generate nothing. That I've either just I'm either developing now or I have purchased and they just never did anything. But ten of them generate at least fifty dollars a month consistently. Okay. And then they you know they top out at a few thousand the the best earners. But have they has that cost you um, essentially something in the region of 5,000 to get those 10 as it were. So you've, you've done a big upfront investment. No, um, I did a few of them. I did a couple of them. I, I, you know, ponied up a lot of money up front and actually paid like 12 times. I think 12 times is the most I've paid 12 times monthly net profit for one, but most of them, I will get, I have gotten bargains on them. So I paid, you know, a couple hundred bucks for one. Like I think I paid 150 bucks for one that now generates $50 a month for me. I, so the one that you paid 12, uh, the one that makes 12 times, you paid 12 times for. Yeah. Does, has that paid itself off? How long have you had it? Like, yes. is, was that a good investment? It was, it paid itself off in, the, in a year, obviously. And uh, I've owned it for two and a half years now. 
That's very interesting. So that one's good. And then I got I got luck. Well, it's funny. I I say things like, "Oh, I got lucky with with these." But after you do three or four that are successful, it's like, I don't know if it's luck or if I'm getting better at it. But I did get a really good deal on one where I paid 2 grand. It was I thought I was going to make around 300 a month, which was I was like, "Hey, I could pay it off in 7 months." But it had a bunch of manual stuff she was doing. So I had a virtual assistant put in place. And then I did SEO and it just took off. There was a bunch of traffic for this term. So it now nets, it's in the low four figures. It's over a thousand bucks a month now. So it paid itself off in like three months, basically. And now. So I have a question um, about this. You know, I don't even know really what SEO is. People talk about this and I, I really, <laughs> other than, other than uh, actually, I really have no idea what SEO means really. Um, could you really explain to us what is SEO in terms of web applications? Um, because I get this impression there's some SEO that's, that gives a sort of seedy, like gaming the system type of, um, I don't know. Uh, black hat. Yeah, black hat uh, thing to it. What, I mean, what is the, what, I mean, what can a legitimate, you know, what is legitimate uh, straight up SEO that's, that everyone should be doing that's not gaming? That's not being spammy or, or sleazy in any way. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, SEO does have a bad rap with some people. And as Justin just said, like there's there's white hat and there's black hat. White hat is stuff, everyone, you know, it's good. It's actually Google issues. They have a PDF that's like their search engine optimization guidelines. So obviously that's white hat. Anything you do in there is legit. Black right, so hat we should, is, by the way, we should make sure we get a link to that, put it up on the, uh, on the notes. Yes. Definitely. I need to read that because <laughs> I don't yeah. know anything about it, like I said. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the black hat stuff. I tell you the truth, I actually don't know a lot of black hat stuff. There, there used to be all this type of cloaking and like you could put invisible text on pages and you could stuff meta tags. I mean, there were all these weird things. I know there's black hat stuff today. I just, don't, I personally have never done it. So I don't know um, really what the techniques are that work anymore. Cause Google finds that, you know, they're smart over there. They find you and they, they weed you out pretty quick. Then there are these, there are gray hat techniques, the techniques that a lot of people do. A good example of gray hat is like buying and selling links. Google says, don't do this. You know, it corrupts our, our index. But boy, I, it's tough to find a webmaster who ranks for terms that hasn't bought or sold a link. So that's right. kind of a gray hat technique. But to answer your question, you said, what, you know, kind of what is SEO and what should we all be doing? Well, the first thing is to read Google's SEO, uh, you know, uh, rec PDF on, okay. on Google. Um, the next thing is to realize that SEO is, there's two types. There's on-page SEO and then there's link building is basically the two ways. Okay. And so, so on-page factors are things like setting up your HTML title tag to have your keywords in the title tag and to have the, your, your topmost keyword that you want to target to be the mm -hmm. first part of your title tag. So it's kind of weird, right? Because you open up a browser and if you, right now, if you go to .net invoice.com, D-O-T-N-E-T invoice.com, mm -hmm. um, the, you would expect, oh, maybe up in the upper left of the browser, it'll say .netinvoice.com, but it doesn't because I don't want people to find me for my, my company name. I want them to find me for invoicing software. So okay. that's the first thing in my title tag. I, it, it's invoice software, invoicing software. I don't remember. But that's, that's one on-page factor. And there are you know a, about a dozen different ones. It's to make sure you have alt tags on all your images. It's basically a checklist that you can... I could send you a checklist or you can just find one online, but those are fairly, um, 
You're just trying to make it easy on the search engine to find you. Yes, yes. And you are. Now, some people even have issues with that. Well, you're gaming the system. You know, you're putting words in there that I wouldn't otherwise put in there. But what, in my opinion, you're actually giving, you're giving the search engines and you're giving potential customers, uh, you're, you're speaking their language, so to speak. Because if you go to a Google AdWords keyword tool and you search for invoicing, you know, it'll tell you how many people are searching each month for this term. And it'll show you all these different terms, invoice software, invoicing software, web-based invoicing software, and you'll see the one that has the highest number of searches. And so that's the one that most people use when they search for this stuff. And so um, by using that term, you're actually like you're, you're figuring out what your customers want most. And as long as you're providing that service, then I don't really see much of an issue kind of using that term to to find your customers. Well, well, and you know, I mean, computers can, are, are, are stupid in a way, right? Even Google's computers compared to humans are stupid. So you have to help the computer out. You have to give it some context. So I don't, that doesn't seem like a bad thing to say, tell this computer this image is an image of X. So let's put X alt tag in there. That That's just helping the, uh, the computer out. Now, right. you said about link building. What is link building? So yeah, link building is, um, you know, a link is essentially how Google measures your importance. It's one of the ways. Early on, the Google algorithm, like 2000, 2001, links were everything. And if you could just get a few links pointing to you with a certain phrase in the href. So, okay. you know, is a certain link text phrase. Like if, if you got 10 or 20 links pointing to you uh, that said credit cards, even if your website had nothing to do with credit cards, like you could rank really high in Google for the term credit cards because they were heavily, heavily weighted towards just links. That's changed. They've gotten a lot smarter, but links still have a huge amount of importance. So the bottom line is if you want to rank for invoicing software, then you need to have a bunch of links pointing at your website from reputable websites where the text, you know, the, the clickable text on their web page is invoicing software. Okay. So that, those are the basics. There's a lot of nuances to it. The on-page factors are very simple and straightforward. The complex part is building links because it's, as you can imagine, like, how do you build links? You don't, you can't just ask for links. Don't email bloggers and do it. You'll never get a link. I get, also, I get these all the time and it's just link exchanges don't work anymore either. So one so. thing that for Justin and I, I mean, I guess for, for, for App Ignite and for Justin's um, one, he, Justin has two Key main projects. One is um, Plugio, which we've already discussed, which is the power Twitter client, which it sounds like some of these SEO techniques would work because people actually search for Twitter yep. client. Exactly. Now, his other project, which is called Swarm, is a board game, uh, which I describe as a combination between backgammon, chess, and uh, Go, and he's written it for the iPad. So nobody's going to be searching for, you know, uh, I can't a term that was that were were swarm would be relevant. So it seems to me that a lot of these techniques wouldn't really apply for new sort of category products like say App Ignite and Swarm. Is that right? I mean, it would be sort of a waste yep. of time, I guess. Yep. If no one's searching for it, then SEO is a waste of time. So then we need to spend our time building awareness through contacting people who may be interested in it and trying to build word of mouth through those channels. So blogs and. Yep. 
you know, submitting. So I, I just had a talk with Guyon today, um, the the the, uh, the friend of mine who I'm building App Ignite with, and I said, I said, you know, what we need to do. We got this. I finally got a landing page up to collect email addresses. What we need to start doing is each of us write at least one or two really really good blog posts and submit them to Hacker News. So we got to we got to brainstorm a bunch of stuff that we've been thinking about, the kind of things that Justin and I talk about in Hacker uh, on our podcast, Texing, um, right? That we say uh, these are topics that are interesting. We might cover them for two or three minutes, but they're actually could be very interesting ideas that could be discussed in more detail. And maybe, you know, one out of every five or one out of every 10 of these articles are actually voted up to the front page. Because as you know, from reading Hacker News, if you have, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff that just never makes it to the front page. So you just never know. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, one thing to be careful of is I don't know how many designers read Hacker News. So that may not be your target market if you are, in fact, targeting designers you know and, and that's what i've found is i've got a bunch of stuff on the front page of hacker news yep. and it's made absolutely zero difference to my bottom line yeah yeah i've i mean that's that's very common i have i know a few people who have these little micropreneur apps and they got to the front page of TechCrunch or they got on track TechCrunch, fifty thousand visitors and zero conversions you know i mean yeah, because right. their their market was not startup techies whoever we are they weren't it wasn't us it was a totally different niche. So I would never try to get apprentice lineman jobs as an example. I mean, I would never, you know, try to get that on Hacker News. There's just no point. Now my book, when I was doing my launch with my book, absolutely, I blogged, just like you said, I blogged about things that I thought were really interesting. I picked a good title, submitted them to Hacker News. Several thousand visitors later, I had a bunch of people on my, you know, on the launch list for the book because it, it absolutely targets that niche and I did that very intentionally. So. Yeah, because I think for App Ignite, it really is the right niche. I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of people doing startups where you know App Ignite would be valued to them. I mean, designers would be a particular niche that would be particularly it would be particularly useful for because they generally can't write code. But even for people who can write code, it would just be way way faster to um, way to get stuff done. So I'm kind of thinking that would be useful for that as well. And that's one reason maybe it isn't useful to to just describe it as a designer's tool. Sure. So I'm, I'm just going to make a prediction that I'm not sure that's going to work for you because I think as we as we know, software developers are very finickety and very specific, and there's a lot of them have the they didn't build here syndrome. Totally. And um, I think that they I don't think that's a great market personally. I think the designers market. I think you're bang on the money with that. Right. With developers, in my opinion, no, I don't think that's the right one. Right. Well, yeah, because designers like, well, I'll bid up myself using Django or uh, or, or Clojure or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they're like, yeah, you can't do it faster than me. I can do it faster than you, just using Rails. Right. You know. Right. 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 So, yeah. um, I, you know, anyway, so those are two SEO takes. Why don't we get into the Microproducer Academy a little bit? Um, that sounds like an interesting thing. What What gave you the idea, and, and what is it exactly? So yeah, I'd like to to kind of. I differentiate, you know, the academy and my book from the the stuff we were just talking about with um, the passive income because they are totally they're two totally different things. And I haven't even I don't have a blog or podcast about the passive income stuff yet. I may never do that. It's just um, something I'm interested in. But the the book is and the academy really are for for people like us. They're for developers who want to either launch a product or start a startup you know, who want to launch a kind of a one person endeavor, a passion product, something you're really excited about. Um, right. So, so that's, so the Academy, to answer your question, um, the reason I started it is because, boy, about 18 months, no, it was longer than that now, it was two years ago, um, my blog was picking up steam and I started getting quite a bit of email from people saying, hey, I see you own .NET Invoice 
And I'm trying to think of what else I owned at the time. But they said, I, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can you help me out with this? You know, and they would ask a question. And so I'd write them back. Well, pretty soon I started getting, you know, a couple emails a day about that. And there was just no way I could keep up with it. So I started collecting those emails and I would write people back and say, hey, would you be interested in me like writing, basically writing an ebook or writing something that kind of addresses these questions? And they were all like, right. absolutely. Like I would totally pay 20 bucks, you know, or whatever to, to kind right. of have all of these answered. And before long, I realized there was, there was just more to it than that. I kind of started writing an ebook and I was like, this is not, this is stupid. Like it's going to go out of date so fast. I wanted to do some screencasts. I wanted to do audio. Like there was, there's so much more that needs to be explained when I'm talking about Google AdWords and how to set up a campaign. The only, the right way to do that, the only right way is to have a screencast of it. There's just no two ways about it, right? A bulleted list does not compare to me talking through this. So right. sure enough, I was like, man, I got to put this in a website. Like I need to, to put a, you know, a, a, a like a blog up and, you know, essentially, you know, teach people how all this, this marketing stuff that I've learned and how to launch a product. And so that became the Micropreneur Academy. And what it is, is an environment, there are several hundred members and um, it has a monthly membership fee and it, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It is essentially a, a, a paid community for people who want to start startups and, and micro ISVs. And so there's a, there's a very active forum section and then there's a bunch of content that myself and my business partner, Mike Tabor, and I have, have created from our experience. We're both entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, it's all about, I mean, it talks about a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, but it basically takes you from square one and talks about like, you know, if you're a developer and you're gonna launch a product as a one person team, there are a bunch of things you can't do you cannot create a social media website as a one-person team. You mm -hmm. cannot create a horizontal website, a horizontally niche website. You really need to go vertical. You can't compete with venture back. You know, there's, there's a bunch of things we basically say, like, you really don't want to do this. And then we kind of narrow it and we say, here's what you should look at. And here are your traffic sources you're going to want to focus on. And uh, that's what it is. And it's, you know, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. And uh, frankly, it's been a heck of a lot of fun. As I said, this is not, it's not like I, you know, I don't make a ton of money from this. It's super fun to just be with all these developers and, and help them out. And of course I learned from the discussions as well. You just, sorry, you just barely finished a sentence there, which is one of the rules is you can't compete with venture backed companies. Yep. So do you, so basically Plugio, which is <laughs> a one man company, which is competing with Hootsuite, which is a, like a 10 man company and 2 million. And there's like a three or four other companies like that. That basically is what you're saying there, right? Isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, and if, <laughs> if you're doing it now, it, well, if you're doing it now, that's, you know, it's really cool. <laughs> Power to you because Plugio is cool. I've seen it. But in the long term, you're, you're going to have a real tough time as a one person because they're just going to, they're going to outgun you. They have 10 developers or, or however many developers they have. There's just no way you can keep up. And they're advertising yeah. their PR. I mean, they probably have, if they have truly a venture back firm, they probably have a $10,000 a month PR firm on retainer. I bet you yeah. start seeing them in Inc. Magazine. You know, you see little write-ups here and there. I mean, they just have, they have the drop on you. So, I, yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons like .NET Invoice, our product, it was doing great a few years ago and sales have slowly been sliding. 
over the past several years. And one of the big reasons is like fresh books and blank sale and simply, you know, all these VC backed startups are just slowly eating, eating out our market share. And whereas I used to be able to get clicks and AdWords for a couple bucks, they're now over five bucks a click. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm seeing an even more compressed version of that with Plugio because the yep. revenue has been a thousand bucks a month every month for the last nine months, but the user base has grown from 500 to 5,000. So I think what's happened is the market has basically compressed the possibility because there's so many alternatives yep. that are free. Yep. And that's, that's where it just can't continue growing in that sense. Yeah, how interesting. Yeah. Now, for example, like for, for Balsamic, does Balsamic have any uh, funded venture funded no. competitors? Oh, any competitors? Point out yeah. that I know of. I don't know. Oh, no, yes, it does. It's, Balsamic has a bunch of... I mean, Balsamic has started... Like, Peldi has started a little industry there. That, like, they, there's at least 10, 10 other guys who are trying to do the same thing now, basically copying him. Well, no, but I mean, I'm about venture, venture-backed, right? I mean, you can compete against no, other micro-ISVs, so, no. but can you compete against a VC firm? I mean, I guess what you'd end up do, ha, needing to do, if there became, like, a, a Balsamic mock-ups, like, VC-backed, you know... Hot shot. Yeah, but but Peldy's earned over over a million bucks in revenue, so I don't think he's in the same. Well, no, no, that's position. fine. But I mean, uh, would he he might be forced into to take VC funding so he can grow as quickly and not get overtaken eventually, right? Because if another company was able to build a a, a product that was good, they were able to clone a lot of the stuff fairly quickly because they had five developers. And of course, Peldy's already sort of painted the path like this is what it needs to be. He might then at that point have to raise money just to be able to stave off the competition, right? Maybe. Perhaps. I, I think Peldy's in an interesting situation. Again, he's totally an outlier. I've never heard of anyone else doing what he's done. But no. the fact that he has made all that money and that he can hire employees, I think I think he could compete for for a while yeah, with, with a venture back firm. I just think he's so far ahead and he has so much reputation. There there's some out, let's talk about uh, some outlier things. Um Peldy and Joel Spolsky and 37 Signals and Eric Sink, do not base your business on what they do. These guys are geniuses. They're fantastic. They built their, their personal brands. They are more than entrepreneurs, right? They mm-hmm. have built their businesses on these, these things, either a podcast or a blog or just being remarkable. You re, it's really hard to duplicate that. So for those guys, all of those guys could compete with venture back firms. Right. I mean, right. look at Eric yeah. Sink. He built, you know, Source Gear. Vault competes with free. They compete with, uh, with these awesome open source free tools, right? Um, uh, Subversion and Git and all that stuff. But yeah. Vault is super successful. So, but he had that early. He had the early leverage. He wrote the book and he had the blogs and stuff. So, it's tough to to kind of look at those guys as. So these know, are outliers that they're the exception, but they prove the rule They're because they're exception because they're exceptional things about them that you can't necessarily replicate. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, well, you can replicate them if you do what they did, which is like with Joel. I mean, yeah, if you get half a million developers to read your blog or however many he has, like, yeah, you can do what Joel did or with 37 signals, same thing, right? Don't they have a hundred thousand RSS subscribers that like, they can do whatever they want. They released an iPad app a month or two ago that if you look at it, it's like, huh, this doesn't do that much. Like I could build that in a couple of weeks, but right. if I released it, I would make, you know, $50 from it, but they'll probably make 50,000. Because they've got a platform, and in many ways, that's why we've um, you know been doing our, our podcast really is absolutely to, to help us build that platform. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny they say about um, you know I think I remember hearing this sometimes. Like, how do I get a really popular blog? It's like, well, start blogging in two thousand four, 
And, yeah. uh, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, okay, right. I mean, you know, you, people happen to be at the right place at the right time and, 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 and did a good job. But sometimes those opportunities, those windows have, have, have closed. Right. I mean, it's not that you can't build up a popular blog, but it's going to take a hell of a lot more work in 2010, 2011, 2012 to build a really popular blog than it was, you know, seven, eight years ago. Yeah, right? I agree. I, it I can mean, still when, be done. Yeah, it can still it, be done. But, yep. you know, you have to come up with a very clever plan and build out through a niche, like use things like Hacker News, write articles for a particular audience and build up. And I, I you know, I've even, you know, I'm sure, you know, we can all think of examples of people who popped over the past year or so we never heard of, like Derek Sivers. I yep. mean, yeah. he, I mean, yeah, he did CD Baby, but I don't think many people know who he was. But now he's a big name, or uh, the guy uh, I always forget his name, uh, Patrick McKenzie. The guy is that his name? Pat, um, yep. From yeah, Micro uh, ISV on a shoestring. So yep. yeah. So with with Micropreneur, it's difficult to say Micropreneur Academy and um, the startup book that you've written. Do they basically? Would you say that they explain step by step how um, entrepreneurs can build profitable businesses? without having to become rock stars and building these huge blogs. Yes, absolutely. Because I don't, because, uh, you know, that you have to be, you have to have a specific gifting to be able to do that. Everyone cannot build this awesome blog or awesome podcast. So yeah, I do not rely on that as a crutch for marketing. And I don't actually rely on a lot of social media stuff either. When I, you know, when I talk about it in the book and in the academy, I, I really talk about kind of your top tier long-term sustainable traffic strategies as SEO and having a blog podcast or video blog. And let me caveat that as I'm saying it. Um, oh, you know what? I need to go back. I just opened my book and that's not what I said. Um, <laughs> I, I, there's another, there's another strategy that I forgot. Um, in the book and, and in the Academy, the, I don't, you know, hold on to these um, kind of these outlying techniques of, of having a super popular blog. I have like the top tier long-term sustainable traffic strategies. And the number one is to have a mailing list, an email mailing list. Uh, and the number two is to have a blog, but I'll talk about that in a second. And the number three is organic traffic. And the, the interesting thing with the blog is the blog can build a small readership. You don't have to be this super outlier, but blogs are so good at search, at search engine optimization, I should say. I see. They're phenomenal right. for organic search. So it kind of ties into that organic search thing. Now, if you do build a successful podcast, as you guys know, it definitely can drive traffic for you. And, but that's not like something that I recommend for everyone to do. If, if you want to do it, then... It's fantastic, but using organic search and building a mailing list through other means is ugh, they're just long-term sustainable ways of finding customers. Well, you know, with the, the podcast thing, is, it's, it's a good example because I think I heard you mention uh, in, one of, in one of your podcasts I listened to recently, and, and you talked about building a blog and how many hours it's taken you over the years. So you have 5,000-plus subscribers, and you spent hundred, hundreds of hours per year over the past few years, and you still only have 5,000, which is a lot compared to most people, but it's taken a ton of work, right? That's right. And the podcast for Jess and I, we've up what, 55, 56 episodes now? We've been doing it for over, for over a year now. We've yeah. put a ton of time into this. And it's not just the hours recording, it's the hours thinking about it and trying to line up guests and 
post-production or whatever and learning and screwing up. And, you know, we're, we're still only getting started. I mean, our listener base is, is growing quickly, but it's got a long way to grow before it's anything substantial. So, like, yeah, you know, you could do it. Um, and and I, I think we are doing it. But, you know, this is like, you know, another five years, <laughs> three years before we have anything really substantial. Right, Justin? I mean, it's a lot of work. It's not an efficient way to get a platform, I don't think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I that's why it kills me when I, I do read you know online marketing stuff or internet marketing people and they say, you need to start a blog and be a personality or start a podcast. Because everyone, A, not everyone's cut out to do it. And B, it's super large amount of work. I would say that SEO is a, is a smaller amount of work you know, than, than trying to get a blog going. The other thing that kills me is people who say, oh, build a business on Twitter or based on Facebook or based on, there's all these techniques that you hear. And yeah, yeah, they they are great um, supplemental traffic strategies. I'll say mm-hmm. it's right. great to get five or ten percent of your traffic, and you might be able to do that from Twitter. But you will never. I mean, there's no software business that I know of that is built on you know eighty ninety percent of the traffic from Twitter or purely through social networking stuff. There has to be that big component of either having a successful blog or having great SEO, having a big mailing list. I mean, there's yeah, th- those are the the long term big strategies that you need to bank on. I've been hearing a lot lately uh, about email lists. I mean, we had um, uh, we talked to Startup Digest uh, a couple weeks ago, and that was their business, which was they sent a monthly email, I think it was, or weekly or monthly email about uh, startup events that are going on in various cities around the world, and they're taking off quickly. And it seems like email lists are coming back into vogue, or I don't know if they were ever in vogue or whatever, but people are really starting to think about them because. Um, you know, it's 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 a big deal. I mean, you can get a uh, you can get a list if you get a list going of any size. I mean, you're contacting people directly. It's not like an RSS reader where you have oh, I have 150 blogs in my RSS reader. I never look at it. That's exactly right. The engagement, the level of intimacy, is so much higher. You pop into their inbox, and you know most people read their email. And so, if you have 500 email subscribers or 500 people on an email list, I would say it's worth at least. Two, between two and three thousand RSS subscribers. Just as I'm kind of throwing out numbers here because I like to quantify things. You know, it's not an exact number, but it really, I mean, it's substantially different the, the level of engagement. And we've been talking, Jess and I have been sort of throwing around ideas of starting after after we uh, talked to Startup Digest, we said, all right, you know, maybe we should start our own email list and based around the, the podcast. And we've been throwing around ideas of what could we do that would be really interesting and in, in, uh, to, to our listeners. You know, last thing we do is spam or irritate our listeners. But if we could create something where, you know, if they got a, an email once a week or once a month, they'd be like, oh, this is cool. I like this stuff. But, you know, it, it, you have to put some thought into it, I think. You don't, because if you start spamming people, it's going to backfire on you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question about it. Yeah, there's no, if you spam, you're done, right? I yeah, mean, it's like, oh, hurt. another email from Jason and Justin. God, I hate anymore. those guys. Yep. <laughs> so that's yeah. the worst, right? <laughs> yeah, that go, totally goes without saying. Yeah, there's two ways to approach the email list thing, too. You could approach it like a newsletter, like it's a blog or a podcast where you have original content, you're engaging people, you're building a relationship. But the other way is to, well, the other way is to go from your platform, like your podcast or my blog, as I've done. And as you launch something, like as you launch a book or as you launch a software product, start you start talking about it several months in advance. You put up that landing page and you build a list just for that product. It's very niche. So you know, I'll talk about my book. Have, have you um, heard of or read um, Jeff Walker's product launch formula? I have. I've heard of it. Um, yeah, I've mixed emotions about it. 
I, I'm sure it works. That line, the internet marketing line is a little bit, I don't know. I don't want to say sketchy <laughs> because I, Jeff Walker's, I think is legit. I think he knows a lot of stuff and I think his stuff works, but, um, yeah, I don't necessarily follow it. Well, why don't we uh, just uh, switch to a slightly different topic? Um, so you have your own podcast now. You've done, what, about 16 episodes? Yep. And one thing that's interesting about your podcast, I just listened to it uh, an episode or two yesterday because I, up until yesterday, I hadn't heard of it. Um, and it's, it's kind of different than what Justin and I are doing. Justin and I kind of just talk about all kind of random things that we think are interesting or things that we're working on or things that we read. Um, we don't necessarily claim to know anything in particular. <laughs> I mean, we do know things and we do talk about things we know, but we're not trying to teach anybody anything. People can learn from our examples. They can take some of the things that we've talked about that are interesting and follow up and do some more research on them. But what you guys do is you, every podcast is like answering a question. How do I drive more traffic to my website? How do I launch a product? How do I buy some, uh, you know, a website? And I thought that was interesting. And what made you think of doing it in that way, doing a podcast almost as an answer to a question and really as a teaching exercise? The reason that, that Mike and I, my co-host is Mike Tabor. And uh, the reason that we decided to do that was frankly, because that's what people, that's the feedback people had given us. Like we're okay. both bloggers and we talked to a few friends and colleagues and we said, hey, we're going to do a podcast. What do you think about these different formats? What do you think about an interview podcast, right? And everyone was like, groan. How many startup interview podcasts are there? I don't want right. to hear another interview podcast. So we said, right. all right. And then, you know, we went down, a, we talked about panel discussions. We talked about just talking like the Stack Overflow model. And like you guys do, you know, more chatting and stuff. And people were really like, look, we got a lot of feedback. Like, hey, I like 30-minute episodes. So we're right about 30 minutes. And they wanted kind of actionable information, which is something I really, that's something I introduced, you know, because I'm big on the actionable stuff. I do not like reading or listening to things that I don't take notes from. If I'm not taking notes, then I'm wasting my time because right. I'm I'm not going to take that with me. I'm not going to improve my personal or business life if I'm not writing something down. So that's what we decided. We're like every podcast, when someone's listening, they should like want to reach for a pen to take a note. And whether it's a URL or a concept, like we really want to, you know, share, share the stuff we've learned. I mean, we both, we've been entrepreneurs for 10 years apiece and we are absolutely not gurus. We do not know everything. I mean, we say this all the time, but we do know some stuff. We know a lot of, quite a bit about marketing, frankly. Right. Um, because we both had a lot of experience owning our own companies and, and, you know, that's what it takes to make them succeed. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, that's, it, that's really interesting. Like, I found it valuable. Um, I have to say, I, I, when I was, I was listening to your podcast, I definitely learned some things and, and took some notes. So that, that was a really interesting approach. And I, I think it's, it's probably a good advice in general, which is you have to kind of do what's ever sort of natural to you or whatever works for you. I mean, some people are more interested in interviewing. They're the, they're, 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 they like to ask questions. Um, I think for Justin and I, it started because we would just have conversations on the phone that ended that Justin sort of realized sounded like a podcast <laughs> because we would talk about, you know, those startup tech kind of things. And so that's just what we did. We didn't come up with a specific plan. This is, oh, hey, we, we need to do X. Sure. And it sounds like you guys you guys have a very specific kind of expertise and a similar area that you definitely know things about because you've done them and you've succeeded at them. And so you can give people actionable information. Um, whereas a lot of people really may not have that kind of specific uh, expertise, right? 
Yeah. They have yeah, a little right. bit of experience. They tried once, it kind of failed, or they were kind of doing it now, in which case you can't really be telling people, this is how you do it because I did it one time. <laughs> yep. No, that's right. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's one reason Justin and I shy away from, you know, get, getting up uh, and making too strong of a point on anything unless we're very sure we know something about or that we know it very well. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, whatever. Some things we know, some things we don't. But anyway, I think it's. I think uh, your podcast is good. So it's it's called Startups for the Rest of Us for our listeners. Yeah, Startups for the Rest of Us dot com. It's very uh, very informative, very educational. And if you're doing a startup or you're trying to launch anything, we recommend you uh, check them out because they do a good job. Uh, what's your uh, Rob? What's your co-host's name again? Uh, his name is Mike Tabor, and he blogs at singlefounder dot com. And how did you guys hook up, and become friends, and start doing the podcast? I mean, how did this whole thing start? You know, that's that's a funny story. Back to that product that I bought on eBay, that forum software, chitchat.net, back right. in 2002-ish, 2003. Before I, my wife was going to have her first child, I realized I wouldn't have time to support and market it. So on my blog, I posted it for sale. And I said, you know, anyone interested, contact me. And he was one of the people who contacted me. He was obviously a blog reader. And... Um, he wound up buying the product from me. And then maybe a year or two went by and he was blogging and he basically said, I have a blog post and it's like a risky one or it's one I'm, you know, I'm not super sure of. Can, can I send it to you and you kind of give it a sanity check and so that I can make a really good argument in it. And so I proofread it and, and we talked about it. And then I realized, wow, this would be awesome because this guy's knowledgeable too, you know? And like, I would love to have my post pre-read by someone. So we started doing that. We did that for about a year, 18 months. And then we fell out of touch for a couple of years. And uh, when I was working on the Academy, I actually launched the Micropreneur Academy solo. I did it by myself and I got it a couple months in and I realized, oh my gosh, this is so much work. It was just, it was, taking me to the cleaners. Right. And so I start, I was like mentally going through, who do I know that has the expertise to help me with this thing? You know? And so he was actually at the top of the list and I contacted him and he happened to, to be available. So that's when we partnered up. And then, um, you know, we found out we have just good chemistry and we were doing audio together and some screencasts and stuff. And so we were just like, man, I, it, I maybe like you guys, like we just really enjoyed talking to each other and it kind of sounded like we had enough stuff to say that we said, let's take it to the next level. You know, we both have been bloggers for years, but what's the next step? And that's when the podcast. How, how are you finding the uh, learning curve compared to blogging? Oh, I, I, f I think we got over the hump pretty quick. I think the first four episodes were pretty rocky. And then after that, it became, v at least it feels very natural. I certainly can't speak for how it sounds, but right. um, oh, I, man, it's really, it's great for us. We, we basically, one of us writes an outline, we meet, uh, meet. We speak on, on Skype and we record it. And then we have an editor, we have a virtual assistant who does all the editing. So we never touch it, you know, after the recording. So our total time for an episode is very small. It's like 60 to 90 minutes. And that's including outlining the thing. So it's a great, it's actually less work for me to do that than to, to blog. And I kind right. of I almost enjoy it more. I don't know. There's more detailed information that I can do when I talk than trying to type everything out. So I, I find it, I have a blast with it. Yeah. I have to say that's one of the reasons I, I, I guess that's why I am podcasting as opposed to uh, writing blogs is because blogging to me is more, is more work. 
you know i yeah, agonize yeah. over every sentence where you know there's no you can't agonize over every sentence because once it comes out of your mouth it's done yep. <laughs> right yeah, you know right. And, and believe me i listen back to some of our episodes i'm like oh why did i say that yeah oh, i've done that yeah <laughs> I, i'm not making any sense I'm, t- I'm talking too long i misspoke five times in the last two minutes but it's over. When it's over, it's over. So you know, guys, we've we've been going for uh, one hour fifty five so far. Oh wow! And it's, it's funny because ye- yesterday um, we we tried and we just didn't get anywhere. With the the connection was so bad. But this this show certainly has been full of cho- you know chock a block full of information. Oh, wow. It's been fantastic. Yeah, so it's been uh, it's been great meeting you, Rob. I you know you I'm guys too. Really yeah. uh, fun having you on the show and. Uh, Really, uh, you really have a lot of great advice and uh, great information. So um, I think I'm going to have to uh, pony up for the uh, book myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to go to startupbook.net and I'm going to buy that within the next hour. Can Please. I just get a copy of yours, Justin? Can I copy? Yeah, I was going to no. say, come on, guys. No. I will be happy. Just send me an email and your addresses. And if you want PDF, I'll give you a free copy. If you want, I'll mail one out to you as well. That is uh, no, no. Just a oh, PDF would be so kind. Thank you very much. That's really nice. That's really nice. Sure, yeah. you don't want a signed copy? I have one. <laughs> I would like a signed copy personally. Absolutely. I already printed out and read the whole chapter when uh, a few, I don't know, about a month or two ago when we drove to Vegas. I was reading it through as we drove through the desert, and I was like, this is really good stuff. Cool. Um, you know, and it's too bad because I had one more question. Let me ask you one last small question. The battery, my battery is going to die. I mean, if you want to, if you want to risk the <laughs> the audio not being written okay, properly, let's just sign go off, and then I'm going to ask him afterwards. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.